Hi there. Welcome to the first episode of the Through the Woods podcast. It's a place to have honest conversations about the pressures, anxieties, mental conditions and difficulties that affect the people in the world of music. Hearing other people's experiences through these interviews has been really enlightening and I find really helps put things into perspective. Now someone who's definitely done that for me is Africa Green. I met Afi at my first day of university. I was heading to breakfast in our halls and ready to show off that I'd done a whole one and a half hours of practice the night before. Everyone needed to appreciate how great I was. Within 15 minutes of introducing myself to Afi, I realised that she would have done five times that amount before we'd even reached dinner. Humbling though our friendship was, I really learned that I was worth more than my practice schedule. Her fantastically genuine nature, kindness and loyalty soon became the aspects of her that I cared about. I didn't feel quite so lost in the practice room and didn't take it quite so seriously when I reminded myself of that. Since then, she's been touring the world with High Contrast, Becky Hill and the Pet Shop Boys recording and performing with all sorts of funk bands such as Resolution 88 and Sour of a Soul, becoming an author and being very involved in the conversation about mental health. And again, even through incredible hardship, she hasn't lost those brilliant parts of her personality. I thought the perfect person to do this interview we're about to listen to was Nick Barraclough. He's a former radio presenter for the BBC, he's an author and a musician himself. Some areas of psychotherapy theorise we form our fundamental traits before we're even 10. It's always interesting to know that someone like Afi hadn't even picked up drumsticks before they got into secondary school. I think I was 13, maybe 14, and I was hanging around at school one lunchtime. I didn't really have any friends and went into the music room and there was a drum kit covered up with an old dust sheet and... I found some mismatched pair of drumsticks and I just sat down and started to play. Music in the family? No, not really. No. I mean, uh, I used to play a little bit of guitar, but no, I had no other influences. So. But you had no friends, so you found your first friend was your yeah. kit? Yeah, it really was, yeah. It was my voice, so... It started off, it was just something to do at lunchtime. And it was something that I was actually good at for once because I wasn't great at school. And it sort of gave me discipline in other areas of my life. But then as I got better, I think by the age of 16, when you're starting to look at like a work experience, then I decided, no, actually, I, I actually want to play the drums for a living. So you have this sort of idea in your head of what it's going to be like. So I just stuck with it and just said, no, that's what I want to do. And family and teachers got it too? Yeah, they did. Yeah. I think there was always a bit like, mm, you know, maybe you should have a backup plan. But I was quite hard headed with it and was just like, no, nah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure it happens. So... Now, obviously, when it comes to college, like any art, like drama school or art school, the competition is massive and you're told all the time you've got to be on top of your game all the time because for every one of you, there's another yeah. 200 behind yeah. you who'd kill for the work you're going to get and all that stuff. How did you react to that pressure? I did work extremely hard when, when I got to university. Um, I was always in the practice rooms early in the morning and I just I sort of battled that with 
always doing the best I could and always practicing. That was really it. Always looking to strive and do better. I tried not to let it affect my relationships with others because I think if you, when you're told that from other people, like, you know, soon you're going to be in competition with one another, it can just make you really bitter and then have no friends. And I didn't really want that. And were you told that? Yeah, very much so. I mean, our degree course is only two years. So they were told in two years, you're going to be in competition with each other. Only 1% of you, you know, are going to make it. And that's, that's a lot of stress. That's a lot. Before you've even got there, you know, they've already, they were telling that um, to us when we were going for the enrolment days, you know, when you were just looking at around the university, they were already sort of telling us that. So they were like, don't sort of come here if you're not going to put the work in. So. so it begins with the culture of fear. Yeah. Yep. Instilling fear. And was it that that you said you practiced as much as you possibly could? How much of that was driven by that fear and how much by I really want to play the drums and I love doing it and I'm feeling good doing it? I think it changed. I think beforehand, my there, it, there was that naivety where it was just, oh, I, you know, I'm playing drums because I like it and I happen to be good at it because I'm spending so much time doing it because I love it. But then once I realised that there was this, like you said, a culture around, you know, in, you had to, they were sort of saying you need to constantly up your game and sort of the whole perfectionism thing then the reasons for why I was practicing that much suddenly it just suddenly changed it was I was still practicing just as much but it was just different it was about making sure that I you know my standards didn't slip and that I could keep up and you know there's a a viola player I know who came on holiday with us to Turkey locked herself away for four hours a day to do her scales and arpeggios and she was driven by guilt there's (laughs) There's that thing of if you're not working, you know, it's like, oh, I'll never get those hours back. That's the first one. I'll never get those hours back. What I could have done at that time. And also, oh, there's somebody else that's, you know, already putting those hours in. Those those three things that's awful. So you'd say that the type of tuition that you get at one of those schools, if it is hard and if, if it does verge on the bullying, is justified by that. No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say fully. I would just say that that sometimes that pressure that you get when you're like, oh, you know, I don't know, that's that can be healthy, but you, yeah, within within reason. If you're being told that basically you're you're crap or you know it, you're all going to be enemies within two years, then that's not that's not healthy. That's not conducive to anything. Honestly, I think that rivalry can be a really healthy motivator, but not necessarily for everyone. I ended up being really hard on myself, and in fact, less motivated. I often wonder how things would have played out at university if we'd had the option of a less competitive teaching style, or if that's even possible. How many drummers were there in your set? 15, maybe 20. In one class, but there were two classes that ran parallel, so there's quite a few. And you all are watching each other? Yes. He's just put in that time, yeah. and he's just, she's just done yeah. that? Yeah, <laughs> very much so. We all sat in one classroom the majority of the time with an electronic kit each, and you'd, you'd, you'd be watching someone flexing behind their drum kit. This is how quick I can go, you know, this is the, the latest fill I've learned, you know. 
So you're surrounded by that sort of macho behaviour. That's it's it's like boot camp. It's yeah. like I mean that, that the, the rigor of that just would scare an awful lot of. How many fell by the wayside? Yeah, quite a few in the class did. I don't know how many exactly. Quite a few. But then since leaving ACM, a few more have as well. You know, when you when you check on people on Facebook or, you know, if you hear that there's going to be a reunion or whatnot, you, you know, people aren't sort of doing music anymore. How do you... This is a difficult one. I don't think I could answer it. How do you know when you're not good enough? Ooh. Why is it going to be um, an all or nothing? You know, people can still... Can still play drums as a leisure or whatever their activity is as a leisure it doesn't have to be a money maker so they can still say all right yeah I want to do it but I just don't want to do it as a job or you know try and make a career out of it so that's up to them that's an interesting point another drummer I know saying that the teachers saying in a disparaging way oh yeah he's just playing pubs now because that's playing to people isn't it yeah what would you say to um Somebody listening to this who is at music college or thinking of going or about to go, who is concerned about the pressure that they're going to be under, what would you say to that person? How should that person handle it? Take all the time they need, that there's not this rush to suddenly be amazing by 20-something. That You know, do you know what I mean? That doesn't exist. It's this, this thing that we've just made up that from programs like X Factor and whatnot, music is like a lifelong thing. There's no rush. You know, do it for the right reasons. You're not gonna go in, or it's unlikely that you're gonna go in and make millions. You know, just do it because you enjoy music. You enjoy working with other musicians and making things. It shouldn't be about the money thing. That's what a normal day job is for. And what do you say to someone who is th- who's there thinking, told by everybody else, he's- he or she is getting on fine, but is thinking, I'm just not up to this. I'm not good enough. I can't hack it. Well, I was in that I was in that situation in the first year where I told my tutor to drop me down a year so that I was on the higher diploma rather than the degree because I thought I wasn't good enough. And I think I was pretty much ignored. <laughs> and I just carried on. And, you know, I managed to get through and I did do really really well I came out with a first so I don't know for someone like that I think you have to be really honest with yourself and you have to say why do you think you you're not you're not doing very well and you can't hack it and then sort of break it down and then see if there's anything you can do or anyone around you can help you to alleviate those things rather than throwing in the towel first first of you know you need to try and find something you know coping mechanisms because you do want a slight bit of pressure because that's the industry it, this you've got to have a thicker skin when you come out you do when i mean there's that all looking at people around you thinking am i good enough but when when you leave university then it's amplified even more it's like okay there's a whole world that's you know doing the same thing as me and it's going to be magnified and you don't want to have you want to have a thicker skin and just be happy doing what you're doing and not looking around it wasn't until years after our time at university did i realize afi's struggles i guess this is why mental health can hold so many surprises because we just can't physically see it 
it wasn't until after you'd finished at ACM mm. uh, that you were diagnosed with the mental health issues yeah. that you that made themselves evident. At what point were your mental health issues taking toll of you? See, that's a hard one. I think university would have been when it started, but I did not see that coming. I did not see that coming until I left uni. And I would say even then it was, I would say within the the first year of leaving, maybe even second, that's when it really started to, I took a huge decline. But I think it was practising lots. So you, you sort of, when you're at university, you have this... Uh, it's a safe environment because you've got a student loan and a grant and whatnot and you've got teachers to hold your hand but then it's not until when you leave and you're not around your peers <laughs> and you're probably having to live back home with your parents like I did and I think it's then that it re- I started to realise just how hard it was to break into the music industry and then there comes that shame around having to take a normal job because I did for a long time working in Asda working in cine world, not having enough music work and having to face problems in my past. Those two things combined. I think what happened, when I look back and I I often think about all the, the things that led up to it, you know, I think it was like my body was saying at that point, we're re- it's ready to deal with it then because I didn't have uni to sort of keep me busy and I really work was really thin on the ground I had like a salary job at Asda or wherever I was working but my mind and body was ready to deal with some of these the, the things I hadn't been dealing with I do I wonder if if you came into the training already with problems that had happened in your as a child and so on whether um it took you out of that took yeah. you away from that I think it did. I think that's the whole point for many people is that music is some sort of respite. You know, it's it's taking you away from things. It can do for some people, but it it can't be your saviour. It can't it can't erase things that have happened in the past. It can't erase troubles. And I think I was in the mindset that it could if I just kept ploughing enough time into it. But it, it doesn't work like that. But there must have been something uh, innate in you before then. So it's quite astonishing that you withstood all that. Yeah. That you didn't cave into it. I think that's just a survival reflex. I think that's what that is. Because I've had to to be like that before in my life, growing up as a child and having like a really rough upbringing. So I just think you just have that sort of survival reflex where you're just sort of as hard as stone, really. But I, I mean, it does. It, you do question things. You definitely do. You never. You're never um, immune to that, to the questioning. But you just. You just keep going on, and you just keep, yeah, surviving. Basically, that's how it felt a little bit. So. So just survival. It doesn't sound like much fun. You're right. It, it wasn't much fun. I don't think I gave it much thought. I think. <laughs> I just thought of it like, okay, you have to get up in the morning, you have to get this these amount of hours in, and then you could sleep easy at night. That's just basically how it was for two years. It was just that. But I didn't think about the quality of life until another tutor said, you know, you really need to enjoy the journey, not the destination. But I think by that point it was probably too late because I was into in this habit of just, just doing that. Now, you made a decision to come out about your mental illness. Yeah. 
about what you've been suffering from, which you would describe as... It's emotionally unstable personality disorder. That's what the diagnosis is for it now, before they misdiagnosed me with bipolar because they're very similar. So why did you come out with it? Because um, I think people should be honest about the experiences and, you know, it could help others. But there's very much in, in the industry when other musicians and other people see you doing well, it's like, oh, you've made it now. But I wanted to give a really candid view of how it really was because it wasn't always like that. And it's, it, I didn't just leave university and fall into a, a you know, a, a really good gig. It, there was this huge space in between where it was brutal. It was just basically hell. And, you know, I think people need to know about it so that, that they know that they're normal if they're going through these things, you know, that it is... Unfortunately, it's more common than, you know, we'd like to talk, you know, think about. Let's just go back to that. You graduated and then what happened? Did you get offers? <laughs> did you get a gig? Did you get... <laughs> yeah, I did. I actually got an offer the, the day before I finished uh, my degree and it was for BBC Two. Um, and it was called Goldie's Band by Royal Appointment. So it were, there was Goldie the DJ um, and a, a quite a few other mentors. And they were taking 12 musicians from around the UK that had sort of suffered some sort of adversity and that we were going to put on a concert at Buckingham Palace for Prince Harry and like a an audience, an invited audience, and sort of be a competitor against the X Factor and sort of say that, you know, these were real musicians with real life stories and that had sort of come out the other side. So it was a bit of a celebration. So that's that's what I did straight out of uni. That's extra. I saw it. I saw that clip. That that looked quite extraordinary. That was, that was a good band. Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. Really, I mean, I made friends for life. That was a good life. drum solo too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a pretty high-pressure sort of thing to do. Yeah, that, it was. that royalty in the yeah. audience and a, a band of great musicians. And you were in the middle of it. Yes. And all that. Very much so. Did you feel then, well, this is it. It's, it's now going to be plain sailing? Yes. <laughs> That's you? exactly what I thought. I thought we would leave... I mean, the whole process, I think, we... It took a couple of months, I think, from start to finish because we had one uh a couple of weeks where we recorded then we had a six month a uh, six week break to uh we had to write a song each and then we had some more um rehearsals and then recording and then we had the performance so overall it was like a couple of months worth of recording and everything and then it took even more months before it was aired on tv and i thought that's it now i've made it because a lot of the other musicians went on to, you know, have record deals. And I thought, yep, I'll just wait my turn. It'll happen. But it didn't. It didn't. I ended up stacking shelves in Asda at 5am. And I thought, that's okay. You know, it'll definitely... The, it, my break will come. And then, you know, it didn't. And then a few more years passed. And still nothing. And that's when the illness yeah. set in. Yeah. When, when you've had these diagnoses... Did they say, well, it was rooted and it just came out because of your circumstances or that it came about as a result of the circumstances? I think personally for me, I think it's really, really rooted in my childhood experiences. But I think the stress of my job maybe was an excel you know, accelerant. I don't know. I think it didn't help any. Definitely didn't help any. 
Ambition seems to blur the picture of where we actually are sometimes. I think the weight of our self-standards can really bring us down, or bring us up. But that balance is made so much harder when throwing in the emotional instability that could come along with borderline personality disorder. So we're talking about you coming out and, uh, uh, and being honest about, about what you're suffering from. What reaction did you get from, from pr prospective employers, from producers or arrangers or band members or so on? Because you say, you say yeah, I imagine you say some guy who's got a band and he wants a drummer and yeah, she looks better, she's great. She's got mental problems. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, can we cope with that? She's going to go mad on the road and throw things at us and, you know. <laughs> Well, the thing is, I don't bring that up. I don't, it doesn't affect me now like it did then when, you know, when I had, when I was given the diagnosis and there was a few years of real tough times, it affected me a lot more then. I'd lost gigs from this. I'd, I'd, I'd been fired because I wasn't reliable. Since then, there isn't a problem. I've, I've managed to, you know, maintain good mental health and there is no need to bring it up. You know, I'm not on any medication anymore. You know, I've, I've substituted things, you know, unhealthy things for going to the gym every day, eating well, sleeping well, you know. And so it doesn't come up in conversation because I know that, you know, any problems I may, may have, I know how to deal with them myself. So. That's a big deal. So, so you dealt with this yourself? Uh, yeah, You're... I went in and out of hospital for years on end, yeah. Oh, for how long? For, I think it spanned for th two or three years. You were being you you were having treatment in, and you're... in and out in inpatient and out and no one knew. Mm. I didn't tell anybody. Mm. The only people that knew were a band a band that I was in where eventually I was missing gigs. We had like massive gigs and that you know the day before I'd be inside and then it would be like well who's gonna cover this gig? I let them down so I had to be let go. But apart from that, the the gigs where I could plan it months in advance. <laughs> I would just turn up on the curb with my drum kit, say there was something wrong with my car because actually I couldn't drive because I was in hospital and just get someone to come pick me up. They had no idea. I had a curfew, so I had to make sure I was, you know, back in hospital by like, you know, midnight. But nobody knew. <laughs> nobody knew I was inside. <laughs> it's true. So how did things straighten out? Was it, was it medication that you had that no. you started to understand? Or you did it yourself? Uh, I tried. I was on such high doses of medication that it can't do you any good you can't function on i i couldn't function on high med you know high doses of medication tried to do the whole cold turkey thing a few days before some um some rehearsals and i i thought i was leaving this planet i don't know what was happening realized i couldn't go cold turkey on med medicine you can't do that so i found a local support group with people who have emotionally unstable personality disorder or um, borderline personality disorder they're both the same thing and through working with others that have it and working with um, staff you know who are trained in it that made it much more easier and I let myself off the hook for a lot more you know I wasn't so I didn't put so much pressure on myself and then yeah just lowering the doses of medicine until I didn't need it anymore and, um, you know, luckily having what finding music work eventually, you know, I think that was a huge part of, you know, actually keeping busy, keeping busy and and living healthily. Yes. Exercise yes. and diet and yes. all that really made that much difference. Yes. To you. 
I mean, you know, after sitting in hospital and doing nothing but swallowing pills, you I put on three stone. I think at one point it was at like over 15 stone. So you feel rough. You feel like you don't even look good. Then, you know, sort of you just feel like you need to do something about it. When you were working, but also suffering, when you were mentally ill, but working, how did the people you work with deal with it? I mean, how bad did it get? Yeah, it was pretty bad. I think they did the best they could. I don't know how they really dealt with it. You know, when you say to your bandmates... Yeah, don't pounce on me and for the gig because I don't know if I'm going to be alive by the next day. That what I don't really know what one is meant to say to somebody else in that situation. I don't know. They would try and be positive for me and say, you know, well, you know, we'd like you to be there and we'll, we'll did you keep mean it, it in. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I felt like I did. Maybe I didn't. Maybe it was a cry for help. I mean, it could have been that as well. But I felt that that low that you know, I couldn't guarantee that I was going to be there. But um, I think it, it, it was real quite, it was negative on everyone around me. I know so many musicians who, really, really good musicians, yeah. who have uh, fallen by the wayside for far uh, lighter reasons than you. Those who actually got into drugs or, or drank or just sheer lack of self-confidence stopped, gave it up, chucked it in. What do you think it is that's made you fight off all that and get yourself back on your feet I think that's something out of my hands I don't know whether it's because I put so much time and effort into this industry into my craft that I couldn't see myself doing anything else nothing else made me happy even though at times it was the one thing that actually made me miserable this, there was some weird love-hate relationship with music, drums You know, there, there's been times where I haven't played for I would say over a year. Well, I've just, it's been collecting dust. I think I've dried my clothes on some of my drums in the past because I just am not going to play it anytime soon. And I think that I couldn't see myself doing anything else. I just, the difference between work and a passion is it actually defines you. The passion defines you. And I am a drummer. I am a musician, regardless of how often I play my drums or not. That is who I am. So that I didn't have another option. When we put all of our identity into our craft, and that's not excluding me in the slightest, there's no wonder it can bring such highs and lows. But I don't think our only voice is our musical one. I think that our character is defined by so many more aspects. I can't preach when I haven't experienced any clinical diagnoses. But I also don't think reminding ourselves of this can hurt in the slightest. If you're interested in finding out more and seeking out more resources and other tools to help us continue this discussion about anxiety and depression in music, then please come visit us at throughthewoods.online. This interview with Africa Green was taken, recorded and edited by Nick Barraclough. Narration was by Oscar Reynolds. The music was mixed by Mikhail Darwood. And the music was written by Oscar Reynolds. Thanks very much. <laughs>